In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Come, O Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy Spirit, and they shall be created. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Well, I hope you slept well. The first night of a retreat is always a bit of a confusion, finding your way about, as about half of you have never been here before. Silence can be quite disturbing if you live in the Bronx before, or something like that. It's like being in a mortuary here, it's so quiet. Then again, it's difficult because the first talk is largely concerned with how to make the retreat, and that in itself is not much to think about. I find it very hard until the first talk because I can't really explain everything at once. One gentleman worried me about this recent biography written by Jasper Ridley, attacking Moore, which Moore would like very much. Moore wouldn't mind in the least. I wish he was alive to cut Jasper at Ridley's throat. But it, it is disturbing, especially as the media always makes the worst of every holy person. But anyway, we'll come on to those things if we have time. But there's no need to spoil the retreat by worrying of those things first. I didn't know what to do at meals. If you keep, don't have silence and we all talk, then the retreat almost falls to bits. In fact, meals never stop. But if you have something, music is all right if you can find what to play. And the first meal is difficult because we don't know what to put on the tapes. But the captain of this retreat had, in, by luck, an actual tapes done by C.S. Lewis himself. I used to go to C.S. Lewis's lectures in Oxford. It was wonderful story to hear his voice again. Well, he's a writer who's helped many and is Episcopalian, and I felt in a way, I listened to one or two of them, I'm not likely to want love in any form, and certainly not at breakfast. <laughs> but on the other hand, it did seem for a lot of us later on, it would be nice to feel while well, I'd actually heard C.S. Lewis' voice speaking. And certainly it's a good recording. So we just took that for potluck, the food's the main thing, and um, uh, C.S. Lewis will blend nicely with whatever's coming next. Well, now we come to the retreat proper, and I gave out to you these copies of All the Worlds a Stage. This is very, very close to Thomas More's life, and as we'll see later. But the first thing about it is, I felt if you had it on paper, there is a good chance that each one of us praying about it would get the light we need for ourselves. It's a great thing to choose Shakespeare because there's no other greater writer in the English tongue or indeed in the drama and th theatre of the world. Secondly, he was, of course, in a way a lapsed Catholic because he belonged to the age where Catholicism was banned and his whole career turned on getting on in society. But his father was a very devout Catholic, and one of his schoolmasters, Hunt, if I'm not wrong, actually became a Jesuit. 
I'm not saying it's a good thing, but it's interesting. <laughs> Shakespeare and all the poets of the golden age were all deeply religious men in a very awkward position because they had to put on the stage what the audience wanted and at the same time they themselves went through great troubles. That's why I chose this also because St. Thomas More, as we'll see, actually anticipated Shakespeare by about 70 years. He wrote all the world's a stage long before Shakespeare. Shakespeare knew more in, by name and put him in his Henry VIII, and indeed there's a play now being decoded by Shakespeare, probably the last play of Shakespeare's thought that exists, um, with all the experts of the world are working out whether it was written entirely by Shakespeare or not. They've got all the computers adding up the commas and semicolons to see. But the odd thing is the play is about Thomas More. So one day you and I may actually have a whole play on the great saint. More foresaw this, as we'll see later, but what I like so much about all the world's stages that it applies to every one of us exactly the same. Anybody can test it for himself. There's nobody here who thinks he's not going to die, I hope. <laughs> and at the same time, it, it gives all the stages, and yet you fill in your own. I brought it and had it typed out because I had to preach for Ash Wednesday at the Holy Redeemer, uh, uh, Kensington, and at uh, Rockville. And on Ash Wednesday, there's no better sermon than all the world's a stage. And it's done in good English and not in Italian or Irish. <laughs> now, what I would like very much for us is to take it away, and the weather's beautiful, the Potomac has smiled at last, and really you never get a more beautiful setting. If you sit very still, a deer will come and re recite it with you. But if you go around and apply it to yourself, the first points I would like to make is uh, that we think out what Shakespeare's saying. And the first and most interesting thing is he starts off all the world's a stage. Now you could spend a whole retreat on that, that we're all acting. You acted as a little boy or a little girl in the school play and you put a crown on or you were a one of the magi at the crib, or, and you stood there waiting, and then the teacher gave you a shove, and you were on the stage, and probably forgot what you were supposed to say. But we've all been in some sort of play. So we're taught all the world's a stage, and that has a wider significance today because of television, because cameras now produce the whole world as a stage. Now I can see the poor people being driven out of Nigeria, I see all that, and I see those who, when they see the camera, wave. And I see even among the very primitive people, they're aware that people are looking at them. The girls wiggle their bottoms a little more. Once you know you're being photographed, you change. It's extraordinary how nice it is when you're not on the stage, then you can do what you like. But given anybody else there, and you can't help wanting to approach him so that television gives us people acting in every part of the world, of every color, in every circumstance, and that alone is interesting. Then Shakespeare goes on to say, and all the men and women merely players. So we're, I'm so glad he mentioned women, 
because he, he drops women out after that, but he gives you just that one mention for women's lib, that we're all, uh, we're all actors, and I'm sure women know that as well as men. We're all putting on an act even in a retreat. I mean, I dress up with all this on. If I came down in my pajamas, you'd say, who's that dirty old chap on the sanctuary? <laughs> you suddenly become holy, or Jezebel, or whatever it is. So therefore, men and women, we're all players. And one man, now then he turns over and only talks about men, and I'd almost give a, a, a slight prize of five rosaries or something to a woman who'd write all the acts, the acts a woman goes through in her life. Because, first of all, we have this schoolboy going to school. What does the schoolgirl do? She's put on a bit of vermilion, put a little bit of something on her, on her eyebrows to attract the boys. That's her first stage. I don't know what happens by the end. Let's leave it each girl for herself. <laughs> so we start off then with everybody's included. And what I like about it is I don't need God to tell me this. Shakespeare's quite enough for me. I know it's true. And one man in his time plays many parts, his acts being seven ages. Now, first we get the infant mewling and puking in its nurse's arms. Well, luckily they don't come on retreat at that age, so we don't have to worry about it. But then you've got the schoolboy, and I find in my own life, you see, there's the whole thing. Of, you, you, you do remember going to school, and although this was written 400 years ago, it's still totally true of every school I've ever passed, in the early morning, if you're out in a car and you pass all the kids going to school, there they're all doing the same thing as we did. And what Shakespeare saw and what Thomas More saw. I love the school children, though they've got nothing to say when they go to confession. Then you've got after that the lover. Now we get into the Valentine Day and all the, uh, you know, that these Elvis the pelvis comes in and all the others. Sigh, he sighed like a furnace, I must say. And then the lover, sighing like a furnace, with a woeful ballad made to his mistress's eyebrow. Well, I didn't quite go as far as her eyebrow in my day, but, uh, but uh, the, we all know what that went on. Then you got the soldier. Well, I wasn't a soldier, but I was in two world wars and in the air raids. Some of you were in Vietnam, some of you were in World War II. Then the soldier, full of strange oaths. They're not all that strange today, they're all four-letter ones full of strange oaths and bearded like the pard, that's Father Patrick, <laughs> jealous in honour, all the rows go on in pubs, about darts and all this stuff, sudden and quick in quarrel, that's certainly true, seeking a bubble reputation even in the cannon's mouth, wanting to, make, to get a name. How many soldiers did that and cheated to do it? But then you see he's grown up now, he's left the army, and now he's become a justice. Now he's a Republican candidate. And then the justice in fair round belly, well, we've, some of us have got that, with good cape and lined, with eyes severe and beard of formal cut, full of wise saws and modern instances. And so he plays his part. Then the next six age shifts into the lean and slippered pantaloon with spectacles on nose and pouch on side, his youthful hose well saved, a world too wide for his shrunk shanks, his pants are too loose. I've got that trouble. And his big manly voice turns again towards childish treble, pipes and whistles in his sound. 
Last scene of all that ends this strange, eventful history is second childishness and mere oblivion, sans teeth, sans eyes, sans taste, sans everything. He's a geriatric, there he's got it. The golden years. <laughs> well, it's a, you see, it's, it's really such a marvelous thing. What I found so thrilling about this is, first of all, I read it through. The next thing I do is to realize that this is all my life. I mustn't take the schoolboy first and then say, next scene, now we'll see a soldier seeking a bubble reputation. No, it's me all the way through. That's the nasty part about it, that you can't stop. Some retreats up in Minnesota where they're much more tough than you are, I got the people getting up the retreat when people signed in at the beginning to put down all the different stages we've got on retreats. You'd say sort of smiling schoolboys too. And then we got sailors, lovers about 23, <laughs> and right down to the bottom about 40 poor old things without teeth. But it's very interesting that it runs through the whole of our lives. There's, this is going to happen to me. Nor, funny thing that uh, uh, Shakespeare leaves out is because he doesn't tell us that you might die halfway along. The young people always say that. They always look at the oldest man in the town and they say, oh, I've got a long, long life ahead. Look at that old chap. Nobody can be knocked off a motorbike at the age of 10, 20. What I find is, is to put in on your, this thing, when you last had a grave disease, when you were ill. I don't know what stage you're at, but some people are very, very ill, almost die, say, when they're only 30 or 40. And so you suddenly get extraordinary thing. Then again, what you do is, it's a wonderful act of contrition. If you don't know what to say in confession, and nobody does, I can't word my sins, they're just hopeless. I just have to say to the priest, it's Father Bassett, and shut up. <laughs> <laughs> because you don't know what to say when you get the sad teeth. You've got nothing to say except that I'm a swine. <laughs> but what's so interesting, if you take an act of contrition, you just go through all those stages in your life, and all the things worth confessing. In fact, I just read this out to the priest in confession. <laughs> Stopping where you've got now. Because, I mean, when you think of it, when you put in, what, what, what are the things you're really ashamed of when you were a schoolboy? Not many, but there were. There are some. You don't know whether you've confessed them. You haven't a clue. You can't even... But you, all you can, I've got a nearly one thing for every stage, <laughs> two for one stage. But... But you suddenly feel, yes, it's not a mortal sin, it's not a venial sin, I don't know if it's a sin, but I know when I die I'm going to have to answer for it. For doing someone down, or doing the dirty, or whatever you did. So it's quite a good thing. I remember a wonderful priest in Lancashire, I probably said it to you before, who said, that, that terrible program you have on television, and we do too, I'm sure we got it from you, um, this is your life, where you, a poor man is led on, and then they bring in all his old friends, and he sits down, and they say, Oh, Mary, look, and then, oh, there's George, I saw him in Singapore, and, oh, suppose they, they brought on a few of your enemies. Supposing you said, My God, there's my first wife. <laughs> then, it would, then they could go to confession straight away, but it's most interesting when you look back that there, Shakespeare leaves a space for all the dirty things and all the nice things. Then there's another lovely thing you can do about all the world's a stage, and that is you can just do it through the Bible. 
I did, for, your, for your retreat, I did it for myself the other day. I took the whole life of some of the great patriarchs. But the beautiful thing about all the worlds of stage is that God starts from the other end. Because God's going to see you when your sense teeth, sense eyes, sense taste, sense everything. So I started the... You take Genesis and go to the very last chapter where Joseph dies. That wonderful chap, how he's, there he was in his grave, and his last wish, take me back to Israel, to Begin and all the rest of them. But that's where, he, that's where God met him. But then before that, you see his two little boys that were born when he was in, never saw their native country. And then before that, you see when his brothers tried to come and get bread, and he knew. And you can go right back uh, past that girl who tried to commit adultery with him, and you can go right back to his early childhood where he was a stinker because his father loved him best. You can go back to when he was 12. Father loved him best, and he told stories about his brothers and sisters to his father. That's why they tried to kill him and popped him in a well and sold him. But his, he only committed one real, after that he become heroic. And what's so marvelous with Joseph is that he wasn't a Catholic, he wasn't even a Jew. He hadn't even got the law of Moses, all he had was God. He hadn't got down to the litany of the saints or anything like that. No, there he was in Egypt, a foreigner, doing extraordinarily well, and helping and save the country. And he's only had God. All the people said all the way along is, his God is with him. And I found Joseph most helpful going backwards. And then you get back to, I, wonder, I suppose he would know. Well, that, that was my one mistake. I, I did I tell stories on my brother when I was young and have paid for it. Or you can take Moses, who's even more thrilling, because he's a splendid. You could, there you re, read the book of Exodus. But you can't read all he did because he wrote too much. Uh, but the odd thing is that Right at the end of his life, you can come to his death. He was over a hundred, and one, he's a darling, because he, we're told that his eyes were still sparkling. He was still at 80, 100 and something. He was still totally happy. You can start him in the bulrushes, and then he ends up on the mountains of Moab. But all those stages happen to him. It's quite interesting to use. The oddest thing about all the worlds of stages, there's no love in it. It's all dealing with one sad thing, our desire to show off. Or not our desire, the need we have to in public that people look at us. That we're on a stage playing and making an act. And that's what we really need so much to think about. How much all of us are dependent on what we do when people see us. Or when we want to reach other people and impress them. Uh, because we all do it all the time, in clothes, in fashion. I never understand people who say, when they're photographed, oh, I wish she photographed, wish I'd been photographed from the other side, that's much nicer. I'm much better from the left. <laughs> I tried yesterday to find which I was better at. I'm not. <laughs> but uh, but all people all know, nobody else thinks that nice from the left. As somebody said, well, you know, why is it that the, the, with photographs that the one that you say were... Everybody else says, oh, Father, Mary, that's the best I've ever seen of you. It's always the one you hate. Because you don't know what you look like. I read in a book, you see, that my left ear, my, my, all, everybody else sees on the right-hand side. 
because in the mirror you don't you don't see yourself. You see yourself with your ear on the wrong side. I tried it yesterday. I held this ear and went to the bathroom, and it was still the right hand side. But then I realised the chap looking was in the mirror. So we don't know what we look like, and we're putting on this amazing act. It's a really rather sort of thrilling thing how dependent we are. Now you see, Thomas More was aware of this. And that's why, long before Shakespeare, uh, he wrote, as a little boy, he wrote um, his own version of All the World's a Stage. If I can find the place in all these books I've got here, we are told how he, he did this extraordinary thing of... Here it is. It comes in his earliest books, the earliest writings he had, uh, in the very first volume, hard, people hardly ever write it down, Master Moore, in his youth, devised in his father's house in London a very good hanging of fine painted cloth with nine pageants, nine pageants and verses over every page represented. It's almost certain they were like a banner because he lived right in the middle of London. His father and his in-law, Rastel, uh, was... Um, often did decorations in the streets and when they had, in those days they were always having performances and pageants and so this may, he, Thomas More painted this to hang out probably in his father's house when the Lord Mayor went by. Well, he chose the stages very like, very like Shakespeare. Only he wrote in a different verse. The first, he's got the first one. In every picture there was one person a hero in the next picture, he was lying on the ground dead, and another chap had taken his place. And then in the third, the lover fell down, and in came the man with a bubble reputation. Moore's first verse was a school child. He wrote, <laughs> I am a child. It's interesting, because you see, they, played, they had shuttlecocks, and I think they must have played badminton in those days. I am a child, I give my mind to play. I'm good at quoits, cock-shying, and at ball. I set my top and whip it on its way, but would to God my wretched school books all were on the fire reduced to ashes small. <laughs> then I would give my life to endless play, which good God grant me to my dying day. Now, I've known kids who that's all they want is to do nothing else in their lives. How about, how, the very next one, you see, he falls down and in comes the next one. And so you've got practically all Shakespeare's ones, all written by a young man, he must have been in the teens, um, and made with the pageants and pictures to illustrate them. Only he varies from Shakespeare because the last one, awkwardly enough, is eternity. When you're sans teeth, sans eyes, sans everything, more didn't stop there, you're still going on without teeth. <laughs> The extraordinary thing is that nothing makes you so clear about death than to read the, all the world's a stage. And then Moore puts in a very sort of sad thing which he wrote for his kids for homework. He said to the, he wrote to his kids in the Four Last Things, if you notice some silly actor was inordinately proud of wearing a gold coronet while taking the part of an earl in a stage play, would you not laugh at his foolishness, knowing full well that when the play is finished, 
he must put on his own shabby clothes again and walk home in them. But don't you yourself also feel very smart and proud wearing an actor's outfit, forgetting that when your own part is completed, you too will walk off the stage as poor as he. Nor do you care to note that your play may end just as soon as his. I remember when I was young, and I'm sure you did, the boy or girl who was chosen to be king was conceited beyond measure when he popped a crown on and a sword and all that. But at the end of the last curtain, you put on your old dirty old clothes again and you go, and that's what we're going to do. What more so clever is that this is what we do in public, what do we do in private? All the time I read all the worlds on stage, I think how extraordinary it is when I go back to my room and there's no one looking. Then I really am down to rock bottom. I can do what I like and scratch, I can dance up and down, I can play a game by trying to flick cigarettes into a basket. <laughs> Anybody knocks on the door, I stop. It's a most strange, strange thing, what is, how nice it is when no one's looking at you. But then, and I end on that note for your meditation, the terrible thing is when you're ill. A night nurse in a hospital told me this, that when, how extraordinary it is to see patients coming in for surgery, especially when they're terminal or something nearly as bad, because they're all charming and they've got a moustache and a monocle and they talk with a um, Harvard accent and they're all very upstage until they have tea and their friends have left and then sister very sweetly uh, like she's like the little nun who runs the retreats here they they say to you now dear I think it's time to get into bed disaster and then she says uh, now your teeth well we'll put them in there shall we <laughs> your false teeth have gone then they say well your wig we have a wig case up there put your wig there and then your glasses there and then they will say, we'll take your artificial leg off now, shall we? And you unscrew that. And then you, you're getting down to rock bottom, which you're not. I'm half finished in modern technology. <laughs> you can now have all your blood taken away. I remember when Pope John Paul was shot and he was dying, they thought. Thank God he didn't. I was in the, the Abbey of the Atonement and they were all Franciscan friars from Italy. And when, when the Pope was having blood transfusions, they were saying, oh, he's not Polish now, he's had blood from Milano, he said... <laughs> <laughs> so you could end up with uh, foreign blood, a plastic heart made in Cleveland, Ohio, and yet you can still go to confession. You could still make a retreat if, they, if you keep your eyes open. But then the nurse said to me, the extraordinary thing is, when a person's out then I, I'm everything to them. There's nothing they can do except they know I love them and I look after them, I'll do anything for them. And then she said, you know, strange, as they get better and get out of intensive care, people ring up and I say on the phone, oh, he's much better today, he's taking more pride in himself. And he, she says, what does that mean? Well, I've given him back his teeth. Now he's got his wig on again. <laughs> He can't get rid of his blood, can't get the blood back, but he's got his wooden leg on, and then he's getting up, and then he says, well, goodbye, sister, thank you for all you've done, and never thinks of her again. And he's back on his house, proud, he's on the stage again. He's got his, all his rubbish on that he put on to take act apart. Now, Thomas More, this changed him. It's, this is at the very center of his holiness. Right as a little kid, that when he's all the world's a stage, 
that this, for you and for me, it's a wonderful moment when you sit down and say, this could happen to me. When I was getting older, I'm now sans teeth, sans eyes, I, I asked two or three clergy of my own age and from the seminary what, what I ought to do. One of them had been a cracky man, even young. Uh, he used dumbbells all day and was always jogging. And he said to me, well, you're not old, you ought to be out jogging, come on. And he, he almost gave me some jogging suit. <laughs> well, luckily, he didn't go very far. The last time I saw him, he was practicing to go in for a marathon. At about, he was about 69. I said, you can't go. What's the bishop going to say when he sees a knock-kneed Monsignor go flashing across the screen? <laughs> well, he died. He dropped a dumbbell on his toe. <laughs> Then there was another man who saw me saying Mass, and I was a bit hesitant about where the edge steps were. He said, that's all in the mind, get rid of it. He said, no, no, you love our God, you know the size of the steps, you've been up thousands of the same measurements. Just shut your eyes, trust in the Holy Ghost, and go up. <laughs> so I tried it with one eye open, and, and eventually I got to the stage where I could come downstairs and go upstairs without anything going wrong. I prayed to God the Holy Ghost, and it worked. And I remember ringing up, the, the priest's house to tell him how much better I was and the girl on the other end of the phone said oh he's in hospital I said what's happened they said he tripped going up into the pulpit <laughs> <laughs> he nearly broke his neck apparently <laughs> so you're not going to put off getting old the great thing is there is a way in which when you think of all these different stages you can be totally happy I feel much more happy now than I ever did when I was young I was so sure most of you do and that's because the strange thing for us after it all is God and that's what we'll think about with Thomas More in the next talk <laughs>